How you doing? Good morning. Good to see you. Luke 21 is where we're going to be, and uh, this is the last message in uh, this section of Luke's gospel. This is actually message number 80 in the gospel, and we have uh, 10 more to go that are going to be next spring uh, in and around Easter, and so it's going to be exciting to kind of complete our study in Luke's gospel. Well, this is kind of brings it into a close for right now, and um, happy Canada's Day, so I hope you're uh, blessed and uh, know that you're blessed by living in this country. We truly are, amen? And uh, so uh, it's good to gather in freedom here today to get God's word open. I've always found that this is a message on uh, the end times or the last days, uh, if you will. And I've always found that a message like this doesn't require much of an introduction, doesn't need an extensive introduction at all, because people love to hear preaching on the end times. In fact, if I were to survey the congregation and say, hey, what would you like me to teach next year? Almost certainly a majority of uh, submissions would have the book of Revelation or some other of the apocalyptic literature um, from the scriptures. People love to hear about it. And... um, From our perspective, I think one of the reasons for this is because we're obviously curious about the future, but because our world, it's pretty obvious to us, our world is increasingly broken. And we can see that happening around us, and we want to kind of understand that in light of God's plan. And so a message like this one or a passage or a a series on the end time seems particularly relevant. And having said that, um, it's important to say that when we study the Word of God, the one thing we're not interested at all in is just filling our minds with facts about the Bible. And we could easily do it in a series like this or in a message like this where we're just learning interesting things about the future and trying to figure out how that all fits together. And, and we're just not interested in just messages that are informational, but messages that are transformational. In other words, what's going to be different if we actually look at this. And so we're not, we're not just going to fill our heads with interesting things about the end times, but we're going to ask a very important question. If you remember this name, Francis Schaeffer, he was uh, one of the foremost um, Christian philosophers of the 20th century. And Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how should we then live? And we could take that question and tag it onto a message like this about the end times and say, okay, in light of what we're going to hear, how should we then live? How is this going to impact my life? What are the implications of knowing that God is working out history in this particular way? And so that's what we're going to do as we look at the passage today. It's a lengthy passage. I do want to read it. I want to pray for us, and then I want to get into it. Uh, But I'm going to read 33 verses, and this is going to take three minutes and 19 seconds or thereabouts. So this is Luke 21, beginning at verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, this is Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, 
and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake, my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are, filled, are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on, on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Father, it really is just an awesome thing to read your word, to read it at length, and to hear the awesomeness of the things that you're doing and will do. And God, I pray that you would do something with that. God, that you would penetrate our hearts right now as we open ourselves up to, to hear and to understand and to be transformed by the power of your word. God, let all of us come to the table right now to feed upon what you have for us. And God, I pray that we would leave full and satisfied because of what your Holy Spirit's going to do in the coming moments through the power of your word. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer, for being with us here today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. The end is coming. Uh, what's a Christian to do? Uh, first, I admit it's coming. Doesn't that make sense? Admit it's coming. I think so many of us uh, functionally live as if the coming of Christ is not actually going to happen. We don't live like we actually believe this truth that Jesus is coming back 
and that the world as we know it is going to come to an end. And in verse 5, the people are all, they're all like, they're standing in the temple and Jesus is teaching and they're pointing to the temple and they're saying, look how awesome the temple is. Look how pretty it is. Look how amazing this whole facility, this structure, this compound is. And Jesus kind of checks them in that moment and he tells them, there's not a stone on top of another stone that's not going to be torn down. There's nothing about this place that's going to look the same. It is going to be completely demolished and put out of service. Jesus tells them, life as they know it, that they think is so awesome, life is going to come crashing down around them. You get so caught up in life in the awesomeness of the thing that we have. And it can be so easy just to forget that this world that we're living in is temporary, that it's going to come to an end someday. We're so enamored by what we have. We're so enamored by our lives, by our marriages, by our families, by our friends, by our jobs, by our homes, by our cars, by our vacations. So enamored with it all. And we forget that it's all coming to an end. Life in Canada is great. We live in an awesome country. We're going to get together with some people, likely. We're going to have some cake. We're going to blow off some fireworks. We're going to have a great time celebrating the awesomeness of this country that God has given to us. No one is disputing how amazing it is to live here and how, how much of a blessing it is that God put us to live in this place. But we got to stop short of looking at this and thinking this is all there is. Look how awesome our country is. As if this is the end game. As if this is the terminus of all things. We lived in a great country. And we do. But Jesus is telling us here today through the text, it's all going to come crashing down. That Canada is not eternal. Not our marriages, not our families, not, not any of this stuff that we're accumulating for ourselves. None of it is permanent. None of it is eternal. We need to be careful that we're not living in denial of the coming of Christ. I mean, the end is actually coming. And we need to not only admit that, but then allow that admission that acknowledgement to inform everything else about our lives. How we should then live. What's a Christian to do in light of the coming of Christ? I know it's coming and I want to live in light of that. And so we get that established. We get that, that acknowledgement, that admission in place. And then we see all the rest of it's going to follow now. One of the things that we have to do is watch for the signs. Now, this is the part where the people who really like the end times messages, this is where they begin to get super excited, okay? Because, oh, they're going to talk about the signs. We're going to hear about the signs. And he's going he's to talk about the Bible, and then he's going to go to the news, and he's going to pull stuff out of the news, and he's going to make it match the signs. Love it. <laughs> you might not love it by the end. And so here, we're going to watch for the signs, the signs of the end of the age. Now, here's one of the things you need to know right away is that in the Bible, it talks about the end times or the ends of the age or the last days, you know, all these different phrases to refer to the end. 
And, and the thing is that in its broadest sense, in the right biblical sense of this, the end started at the moment Jesus ascended into the clouds. So in the right sense of it, biblically, we are in the last days. We have spent our entire life in the last days. And the last days started 2,000 years ago when Jesus disappeared into the clouds. These are the last days. Now, for sure, by the end of the last days, things are going to intensify. But please understand, these are the last days. These are the end times that we're living in right now. And that's going to become really important when we start looking at all these signs. Because so many Christians fixate right here on the signs. And so they are the ones who are asking, like the, the people who are with Jesus in the moment here in the passage, they ask him in verse 7, teacher, uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And in, in essence, when's this going down and, and how can we know? And in two sections then, in this lengthy passage we read, you can see in your notes we've broken this out, in verses 10 through 12 and 20 through 27, he gives them eight signs of the end times. Ready for them? Just say ready if you're ready. Eight signs of the end times. First one, wars. There's going to be wars. I mean, I was just wondering, how many wars do you think there have been in the last 2,000 years? I mean, I don't know the answer. I didn't research that. But there was actually like a history teacher in the first service who came to me between services. And he didn't tell me the number of wars that have happened in the last 2,000 years since the ascension. But he told me this. In the entire 2,000 years since Christ, there have only been six weeks where there has been no warfare on the earth. In 2,000 years, six weeks where there is no warfare. And the longest that any of that period of peace has lasted is a week, okay? It's six accumulated weeks over 2,000 years, but the longest single sequence of time was seven days. Okay, so like when it comes to a sign of the end times, I'm just not sure how helpful it is when it's been 2,000 solid years of warfare. See where I'm going with this? Already some of you are disappointed, I can tell. Secondly, wars. Secondly, earthquakes. I mean, there's just earthquakes all the time. And the thing that happens is some big earthquake happens somewhere in the world and thousands of people die and so many things are destroyed. And people are like, the sign of the times. Look at the sign. Yeah, well, earthquakes have been happening since forever. Okay, again, it's not a definitive sign of anything except that we live in a broken world. Wars, earthquakes, third, this is also in verse 11, famines and diseases. I mean, there's just been so many famines and diseases, and um, when we run out of certain ones or cure certain ones, you know, the thing that we're best at now is we just invent new ones, you know, through other things that we're doing, and there's so many famines and diseases throughout history. Um... I don't think there's anything there that's pointing definitively to a certain period of time that this is it. We're going to talk a little bit about more about that in a moment. But here, how about the fourth one, celestial phenomena? And in fact, you look at celestial phenomena, you're not even really certain whether this is actual celestial phenomena, like the star that appeared when Jesus was born to kind of announce his birth. That can happen. 
or if this is actually just a metaphor, because this is a pretty common term that's used throughout the scriptures for prophecies. And when things were fulfilled, it wasn't like there was some spectacular light show or that things fell from the skies, but there was some kind of a sign of some kind that might have happened, or it was just metaphorical, just kind of an illustration of, hey, some things are going to happen here. We're not really sure how that's all going to play out, and so we don't want to be so definitive about it that we say this is what it is. That's also in verse 11. And then the fifth one here, persecution of believers, verse 12. And this is going to get like pretty intense. And persecution of believers, by the way, you just think about this. Um, persecution of believers, you know, you get um, uh, people hate you. People accuse you according to your faith. They might beat you. They might arrest you. Uh, you might even be martyred, as some are in the passage indicates. Some actually might be martyred for their faith. Check, 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 check. That's persecution. Persecution is not someone disagreeing with you on Facebook. That is not persecution. That is not persecution. And by the way, it is not persecution if the government in Ottawa doesn't give you money for your summer interns. That is not persecution. Okay, the first century believers weren't applying to Rome to have missionary interns um, funded by the, by the emperor. Okay, they didn't look for that kind of thing. So that's just a bonus. If the government gives you money to do things and then say, oh, we're not going to do it anymore, that's not persecution. Okay, the government is not supposed to be funding the church. We fund the church. And so just be careful about what persecution is because I think sometimes we're very insulting to people who are actually being persecuted when we claim it for ourselves, when there are actually people putting their lives on the line, people who have died for their faith, and we're like all whiny because somebody disagreed with us on social media. I mean, we need to just get over that. This is my last message for a while, so I'm feeling a little ranty this morning. <laughs> Sign number six is the siege of Jerusalem. And you're going to see that in history. Okay, that happened several times. Okay, but that's one of the signs of what's going to take place. That's in verses 20 to 24. And then number seven, the world in turmoil. I mean, when has that not been true? The world in turmoil. I feel like if you're going to write a definitive history of the world, you could use this as the title for the book. The world in turmoil, because that's what it is over and over again. And you see that in verses 25 to 26. And so, again, sometimes Christians in their zeal to make every little detail mean something, look at an earthquake and say, it's a sign. Or they see back in the 80s, it was like AIDS, and that's a sign. People back in 100 and some years ago, World War I broke out in 1914, and people were like, this is it. This is the big one. This is Armageddon. Uh, was it? Was it Armageddon? Was it? No, not at all. And so we need to be so careful about all of this. And so it's going to be helpful for us to actually, I know this is the part where some of you just kind of fade right out. All of you people who hate history, you're going to fade out right now. You slept through high school history class the entire four years you were there. But we're going to talk about history for just a second because it's going to be helpful to us to actually do this. And when we look at these, these signs, we could say, these seven signs, we could say that all of these have been happening with greater and lesser intensity throughout all of history. That's the reality. And so in that sense, because all of this last 2,000 years since the ascension is the last days, all of these are signs that we're actually in the last days. The world is very broken. So let me give you this by way of example. In the 14th century, um, the Black Plague, 
Black Plague, anybody? Okay, not that you were there, but you read about it, right? So the 14th century, the Black Plague devastated Europe. Okay, listen to this, 50 million, 5-0, 50 million people died. That's, that's half again as much as the population of Canada died. It was 60%, 6-0% of the European population at the time died during the Black Plague. Can you imagine, like more than half the people around you in your population, dead. So, so this one guy, he wrote this. I mean, if that's happening, if more than half the people around you are dying, don't you think that you would think that that was the end of the world? Wouldn't you think that? That this was the one definitive sign. One man wrote this. Father abandoned child, wife, husband, one brother, another. For the illness seemed to strike through breath and sight. And so they died. And, and no one could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, without priest, without divine offices. Great pits were dug and piled deep with the multitude of the dead, and they died by the hundreds, both day and night. As soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug. And I, I buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. There was no one who wept for any death, for all awaited death. And so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. Agnola di Tura from Siena, Italy wrote that. But here's the thing, all believed it was the end of the world, but it was the 14th century. It wasn't the end of the world. The world didn't come to an end in that moment. And so the fact that many of these signs are happening in our day doesn't necessarily mean very much at all. Now, the last sign, that's something, because some of you have noted, it's eight signs of the end times. I've given you seven. The eighth one is Jesus coming. I can say with absolute certitude that if you see the eighth sign, then all the other signs you saw were accurate. <laughs> okay, that's what I can say with certainty. Jesus coming. When you and I see him, we're gonna know the signs were right. Otherwise, they're pointing forward to a day when he's coming, but mostly they're just hard things that are happening in a broken world that point to the very desperate need we have for Jesus to come. And they're things that keep us on our knees and before the Lord, pleading for his return. So that gets us uh, really started there. We admit that the coming of Christ or the end of the age is coming. We watch for the signs and that leads us nicely into this third point, beware of end times nut jobs. Beware of end times nut jobs because they're the ones who are actually pointing to the signs and then making stuff up about the signs to, to, um, to, to keep us kind of connected to them, watching their videos, buying their books. They take these signs, they relate them to what you're reading in the news, and the internet has given them such a hearing so that it's so pervasive today. Now, I want you to know I've done my research on this. Nut job is actually a technical theological term. 
That might be sarcasm. For preachers who like to stir up the masses by speculating on the details of the end times. And there's a spectrum here to the nut jobs. There are the well-meaning nut jobs who, who, who are, um, you know, they're good. They love Jesus and they're preaching the word of God. They're just really, really interested in end time stuff. And so they're just like very, very focused on that part of it but their motives are pure in it. But you can run it all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you have some of these who are actually pointing to themselves as the Messiah. And Jesus warns, warns about those who are coming, claiming to be him. Verse eight, Jesus said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Okay, I am he. I'm actually the Messiah. The time is at hand. I'm so fixated on these signs. I'm going to tell you about them. And then Jesus says, do not go after them. Do not go after them. That seems super clear to me. And so we need to be so careful. How do you know, Todd? How do you know whether the guy's just well-meaning but kind of off the mark or he's a false Messiah and pointing to himself? How do you know? Well, the bottom line is stick to the word. Stick to the word. And especially when it comes down to these signs and people pointing to things, I, to me, the definitive word on this, Jesus said himself in Acts chapter one, verse seven, where he said this, it is not for you to know the times and seasons he is fixed by his own authority. You don't know the time. And so even a person who says, okay, these guys over here, these well-meaning, but misguided guys, they're pointing to things and they're all like, I don't want to set the date or anything. But these signs sure make it clear that it's going to happen. Okay, you're setting the times and seasons. It is not for you to know the times and seasons he has fixed by his own authority. We can't know. And what makes people vulnerable to the message of those who would claim to be the Messiah, false messiahs, or those who are well-meaning but off the mark. What makes us so vulnerable to that is that we believe that there's a word outside of this word, that there's something more we're supposed to have or supposed to know. And this is, listen, this is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. We don't need another word. God has given us his complete word. So I'm not looking for anything else. You shouldn't be looking for anything else. And when you're not looking for anything else, then these guys are never going to lead you astray. And that's Jesus' warning to us right here. Don't go after them. See that you are not led astray by them. And so having said all of that, then we go to the Bible and we realize there's actually a lot of scripture that's written about the end times. Almost the entirety of the book of Revelation large portions of Isaiah and, and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets and, and, and Daniel, the latter half of his book, all these visions and dreams and portions of the gospel, all pointing to the end times. And you have to ask yourself the question, I would ask myself, why so much of the scripture is given to the end times if, 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 um, if we're not supposed to fixate on all the details? Well, I'm super grateful for the school that I went to that uh, taught me theology. And in that school, I had a man who was my hermeneutics professor. Hermeneutics is the uh, uh, biblical method of interpreting 
of the scriptures, biblical interpretation. And he said this, it's a bit of a paraphrase, but I remember him teaching us about the apocalyptic sections of the scripture. And he said, this is, this is the way it's supposed to go down. The apocalyptic literature is not supposed to be interpreted down to the last detail, but is intended to wash over us like a wave at the ocean. It's meant to knock us over with an overwhelming yet refreshing sense of the awesomeness of God. In other words, when I read the book of Revelation and I'm, I'm reading about something that's so awesome, I can't quite figure it out, and I'm tempted to kind of look at all the details and make that fit what's going on in the world, God wants you to just stop and just go, you read it, and then you just go, whoa, that's it. Just to see God in his awesomeness, that he's in control of all of this. I really want to make sure you have this. And so I want to give you, this is the key. I'm going to give it to you right now. You ready for it? I'm going to give you the key to understanding and interpreting the apocalyptic literature. Watch the screen. Here it is. This is the key to it. Okay, watch this guy. That's it. There you go. That's it. That is the interpretation of the apocalyptic. We're not trying to pin current events on biblical imagery. We're, we're going to stop over-interpreting. We're going to let the end times passages do what they were intended to do, to encourage Christians with the truth, Christians who are being persecuted, Christians who are in exile, to let them know that God's got this. Are you getting it yet? God's got this. God's in control. God's working it all out. Nothing is outside of his control. God is working all things together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, let the apocalyptic wash over you like a wave at the sea. Be overwhelmed and refreshed by what God has revealed about the future. That is your hermeneutics lesson for the day. Did you get it? You're never going to forget it now, right? That's, that's what it's going to do for you. Now, let me give you an example of how this kind of thing plays out. And I'm almost certain I'll offend somebody by this, but I'm starting vacation soon. So <laughs> in the last couple of months, the American government, the president made the announcement that he was going to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That's a big deal. That's a big geopolitical thing in the world today because of Israel and how people view Israel. A lot of Christians became super excited that the president was moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is the heart of what Israel really is. And many Christians, well-meaning, but into the details, were feeling like the moving of the embassy was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, that God was up to something. And I want to say, really, that that is... Maybe, possibly, but not definitively true. That there's nothing you can point to in the scriptures that says that that's exactly what's going on. And we need to be careful as the followers of Christ who approach the scriptures to not impose what we believe on the scriptures and to not speculate about what the scriptures say. So could God be using these things to bring about the end? Sure. That's about as definitive as I'm going to get. But let's admit that it's only speculation, that it's not grounded in any definitive biblical truth. 
We could even go back further than that. The moving of the embassy is a big deal, but the fact that Israel exists today is a big deal. 1948, in fact, the uh, little parable we have at the end of this section, it's the parable of the fig tree that is actually used to say that Israel forming as a new nation state in 1948, that that was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And actually, the parable doesn't even really go there, and you'd have to be taking what's in the news and imposing it on the Scripture to actually make it say that. And so really, here's what we need to say. Is it significant that Israel came into being in 1948 and exists as a nation to get today? Is that significant for us as Christians believing in the Word of God in light of the end times? The answer is, maybe maybe is as close as we can get to it. And here's the reason why. Throughout history, there have just been so many, what we call, as we're interpreting the scriptures and interpreting the apocalyptic, so many partial fulfillments throughout the history. So God would give the prophetic word, this is what's going to happen. But then down through history, you see, well, this, it kind of happened here, and it looks like it happened here, and maybe it happened here. And the final fulfillment is all the way down here. But along the way, there were all these little, little partial fulfillments that kept, us, kept reminding us that there was a greater fulfillment coming down the road. In case in point right here in this passage in Luke 21... You have Jesus pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem. And when he's talking to his followers at this point, the destruction of Jerusalem was still 20, 30 years down the road. But in AD 70, it would be destroyed. Well, they didn't know that. That was prophetic for them. But we also know reading this passage, there's going to be a future siege of Jerusalem. That's why it was in the eight signs that we looked at. At some future date, Israel's going to be under siege again that there's going to be another whole thing that's going to happen with regard to Israel. And actually, when you look at, back to history again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, back to history. But when you look out throughout history from AD 70 till today, there were actually multiple sieges of Jerusalem that happened, most notably during the Crusades. Jerusalem was invaded. Uh, Christian Europe sent armies. The holy wars took place. Jerusalem was liberated. Jerusalem was occupied, Jerusalem was liberated, it just kept happening. And so we haven't yet had the final siege of Jerusalem, the final event, but along the way there have been all these other little partial fulfillments that have happened along the way. Why does this happen? Well, largely because God has presented the material to the prophets in a way that they can't necessarily sort out what's happening when. And the best way to kind of illustrate this is with a mountain range. And when you look at a mountain range, you can be standing at a certain vista and you can be looking and it's really actually very difficult to determine which mountain is in front of which one. Aside from the very closest ones, it becomes difficult to discern, is that peak closer than this peak? And as God gave all of the details to the prophets, they're looking at it not necessarily on a linear timeline, but they're looking at it, trying to figure it all out and putting all these details in. And so some of it is fulfilled and some of it is not. And some of it has a partial fulfillment and there's still an ultimate fulfillment, but it all looks like a mountain range. One man described it this way. F.W. Farrar said, a prophecy is like a landscape in which time and space are subordinated to eternal relations and in which events look like hills seen chain behind chain, which to the distant spectator appears one. So at some point in the future, there's going to be something else with Jerusalem 
But along the way, there's been so many other things that have happened with regard to that city. And all that to say, as we interpret the scriptures, particularly the apocalyptic sections, we need to be so cautious about pointing our finger and saying, this is definitely this. When the final sign comes, when Jesus breaks through the clouds, you're going to know that was it. Until then, we rest and trust in him and the way he's working out all things in the world. Now, having said all of that, for sure when you're looking at the details of, of all of these prophecies, it could bring about some fear in people. And we're on number four. Is it number four we're on right now? Number four, no fear for the, for the Christian. With all of these things that are going to go on, there's no fear. Jesus says in verse 9, do not be terrified. In the face of all of this, in the face of all of these signs, as horrible as it seems like it's going to be, Jesus says, do not fear. And in fact, there are only two reactions to what's going to happen in the apocalypse, if you're really understanding this. For the Christian, the reaction is going to be, this is awesome. That's our, that's our reaction as the followers of Jesus Christ. But the other re reaction is those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who are unbelievers, who have not surrendered their life to Christ. And the reaction should be, I'm terrified. If what's going to happen is what's in the scripture, then that should invoke fear in everyone who is not a believer. For a Christian, it should be joy at the culmination of history, the soon coming of the king. Our faith, our trust, our confidence should be resting in the Lord. And in part, that's actually why he gave us all the apocalyptic literature in the scripture. It's to tell us, you know what? Here's a great way to take away fear. I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. I know you're not going to understand it all, but it's going to be awesome. And you're going to see by the end of it, God is fully in control. And so now that you kind of know what's around the corner and what's in the darkness, and you know that I'm in charge of it all, there's really no need to be afraid. So that's why he tells us. But for the unbeliever, it's just not that way. Knowing helps, but they don't know, and they don't know Jesus. And if you're fearful at any of these things we're talking about, if you're fearful... It's either because you are unsaved and your sins have not yet been forgiven or you just haven't yet gotten all of this and it's just going to take some time for you to hear the scriptures and learn from them and realize you can have a great assurance in him. And if you're one of the ones who's not a believer and you're fearful of these things, it's time to give your life to Jesus Christ. Don't delay another moment. Surrender to him and find the forgiveness of sins and get the hope that he's promising right here. So no fear and then when you have no fear, it actually gives you a holy boldness. And this puts us on mission to tell everyone you can about Jesus. Jesus says in verse 13, this is going to be when all these things start happening, when people are wondering about the signs around them, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, I want you to look at the signs again. These things, a good portion of these things are actually happening in the world. People are excited again. He put the signs back up. This is the moment. I know it's going to happen now. Okay, okay. You look at these signs, you just go, a lot of these things are already happening today. And these, these provide us with an incredible opportunity to actually witness, bear witness for Christ. But some of us, again, kind of the social media thing is a bit of a two-edged sword. It's like good in some ways and bad in a lot of ways. And some of us are just like, oh, the world, it's so bad today. And we're so social media shocked by how messed up the world is. 
And I don't know why we're shocked by that. We say we believe the Bible and we sit under the teaching of it and we read it and the Bible tells us that the world is messed up by sin and it's going to get worse. So why are we shocked? Why are we shocked that our government is racing away from Judeo-Christian ethics? Why is that surprising to us? And we need to, by the way, having mentioned that, man, I really am ranting today. We need to stop trying to make our country Christian. Stop trying to make this world Christian. God says he's going to vaporize this world, that it's coming to an end. Our goal is not to turn the world into a Christian place. God's actually going to do that, by the way, when he creates the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, our job is to tell individual people who don't yet know Christ that they need to have him. That's our job. Not to, not to have Christian governments, not to be pushing morality on the world, not to be trying to create some kind of theocracy out of what we've got going on here. Listen, we're supposed to be wit bearing witness to Jesus Christ in the lives of individuals who we have in our lives. And so tell every you, everyone you can about Jesus Christ We need to stop arguing our political positions. We need to think a little bit more about the first century Christians, you know, the very first Christians. I mean, they weren't signing petitions and writing letters to Rome. I just think that what's happening in this particular political situation, I just think it as, you know, as Christians, we'd like to see that changed and writing to the emperors if they're going to get that changed. They weren't doing any of that. They're bearing witness to Christ. They were preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. They were putting their own lives on the line for that. They were losing relationships and being beaten and thrown in jail for the cause of Christ. They were preaching him, not political change. We need to stop being activists for our own personal political preferences. Don Carson, an eminent theologian, uh, wrote this. Uh, when you're busy hating everybody and denouncing everybody and seeking political solutions to everything, it's very difficult to evangelize. It's very difficult to be compassionate, to look on the crowds as though they're sheep without a shepherd. And he's right. We need to get our Christian act together. The world's coming to an end. Queens Park doesn't have the answer. Ottawa does not have the answer. Washington does not have the answer. Bill Gates makes a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar donation. That is not the answer. Inclusiveness is not uh, the answer. Positivity is not the answer. UN peacekeeping missions are not the answer. All of those things are good things. They're good. They're nice things. But they're not the solution to make this world a better place. They're not going to solve it. Jesus Christ is the only solution. Amen? Jesus Christ is the only solution. Jesus said in verse 28, your redemption is drawing near. So tell everyone in the midst of this very broken world, this screwed up world that has been screwed up, by the way, since the Garden of Eden. Tell everyone the urgency is no greater because the signs are becoming more intense. The urgency is great now. People are dying without Christ and going to hell now. Got no time for politics. The urgency, the mission has always been in front of us. Go and make disciples. Tell people who don't know about Jesus about him. Invite them to come and see. Be bold and go and tell them about Christ. Life is hard. It's going to get harder. Time is short. Everyone needs Jesus. 
So let's get out there. Let's bear witness to him. Tell everyone you can about Jesus. And, and, and listen, lean on the Holy Spirit to do that. Because I find that so difficult for so many of us to witness to him. And yet Jesus tells us we can lean on the Spirit to give us boldness and also to endure all things. He says in verses 14 and 15, you don't even have to think ahead of time what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words that you need in that moment. You're not even going to have to think about it. And we're going to need to witness even though our loved ones, the people we cherish the most on this earth, our spouses, our children, our siblings, our parents, even though they're going to reject us and hate us, and some of them, hard to believe, are even going to turn us into the authorities for our faith in Christ. Imagine that. Do you love Jesus enough to bear witness to him even if your spouse says, I'm going to turn you in. Even if your children say, I'm going to turn you in. If your parents, your own mother said, stop preaching Christ or I'll turn you in. Would you still speak for him? Would you still live for him? You see, if I have to answer that question in my own strength, there's no way. No way I would do it. That's why we need to lean on the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit who speaks for us is the only one that could give us the kind of words that would allow us to stand against the people we love the most. We need to lean on him and be prepared even to give our very lives to sacrifice every relationship if necessary for the sake of Jesus Christ. And verses 18 and 19 just tell us in the face of that, we're not going to faint. We're not going to fail. You won't. God promises not a hair of your head is going is to perish. And not in the sense, because some obviously gave their lives, but in, in the sense of um, you're going to endure. You're going to remain under this trial. You're going to prove to be faithful. You're going to persevere through all of this. And in the end, you're going to receive eternal life. You're going to be faithful and endure right to the end. Jesus is going to preserve you through all of it. And so lean on the Holy Spirit, and then this follows again. Just be filled with hope. When you have the Holy Spirit doing that, and you're standing in the face of this incredible opposition, you're going to be filled with hope. The strong encouragement in verse 28, and the short parable of the fig tree in verses 29 to 31, they deliver hope in the midst of overwhelming events. The parable of the fig tree says nothing about Israel becoming a nation in 1948. It says everything about the fact that when the trees bud in season, and you know that summer's coming, that's the parable. Summer's coming. God's going to do what he said he was going to do. God's going to fulfill all of his promises. Your hope can be rooted in that. And in fact, he says in verse 28, no matter what happens, you can raise your head. You can stand up straight and raise your head and have confidence and, and demonstrate hope. You know who drops their head? You know whose head is hanging? The defeated, the downcast, the, the desperate, the sorrowful, the sinful drop their heads. But the followers of Jesus Christ, 
They're not defeated. They have victory. Their heads are up. They're not downcast. They have hope. They're not sorrowful, but filled with joy. They're not sinful, but covered by the blood of Christ. Their shame is erased. They don't cower in fear. There's no guilt anymore. Those are all the reasons why we drop our head. We lift our heads because we have Christ. And he said, your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. Summer is near. The kingdom of God is near, verse 31. So raise your heads with confidence and hope. And in the midst of a broken world, God offers hope, but more, more importantly almost, in the midst of personal brokenness, which every person in this room is a follower of Christ, you had a season of personal brokenness and the Holy Spirit was there for you and delivered hope to you. Personal hope God offers to all who are personally broken. You and I can lift our heads in hope because Jesus Christ bowed his head in death. His sacrifice on the cross delivers that hope uh, to us for this world, for each person who claims it by faith. And all of that comes to us through the living word of God. And you can trust the word of God. You see that? Eighth, trust the word of God as it tells us about this hope. Jesus said in verse 33, the earth and the heavens are going to be done away with. By heaven there, he means the sky. It's going to be gone. But my words will not pass away. Okay, Jesus is essentially saying, all that I've just told you, all of that is going to come to be. Everything we've been talking about for the last uh, three years as we've walked around and I've been teaching you, it's all going to happen. You don't need to look for other truth. You don't need to chase after other teachers. You don't need to fumble your way through life. You don't need to make up truth for yourself. And truth, by the way, Jesus says, truth is, is firm. It's, it's absolute. It's not relative. In a world that says everything and says nothing, the word of God can be trusted. And then he says, as part of his word, verse 32, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Well, which generation is he talking about? It's a big a question around this verse. And obviously a lot is at stake here. There, there was a sense in which the people he was talking to, that particular generation would indeed some decades later see the actual destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but there's still a future aspect to this. And it seems best to see this, that the generation that's alive when these signs start to intensify and the end of the age really comes, that generation that's hearing these things will see the actual coming of Christ and the culmination of all history. And we can trust the word of God in all of that. All right, eight points down, one to go. Can I get an amen? This is perhaps the most important part, and it's fitting that it should be last. Just want this to kind of stick in our minds even as we finish up this message. You and I must live righteously before it all goes down. We must live righteously before it all goes down. But in fact, this is just like the call to the Christian life to live righteously, to live holy lives. 
And I think about a message like this landing on July 1st, and we know that we have all of July and all of August ahead of us, and we know how painfully short our summer is, and we want to take full advantage of the next couple of months. And and, and we obviously modified the ministry here. So most of you, if you're in a small group, your small group's already had a barbecue and closed things off, and the small group's not going to meet during the summer. And you know, we've already escaped. There's no Awana. We've given all our Awana leaders a break. And youth is going to be on an every other week schedule. And, and, and we're not even doing Saturday church this summer. So we've kind of like scaled it back and give you a rest and just let people kind of get fired up for the fall again. But the temptation of rest is good. God made Sabbath. It's awesome. God can bless us through that. Take advantage of that. The danger is, though, in summer, we begin to shut off some other systems that are absolutely necessary. We start thinking less about even reading the Bible and less about our prayer life and we're not with our um, small groups and we're not in those breakout sessions and we're not praying for one another and maybe some of us aren't serving throughout the summer because our ministry isn't functioning. And we can get lazy about our own scripture reading, our own prayer life, our own witness for Christ, our own serving for Him. And then we keep, we, it just kind of the road just keeps going and, and we start allowing temptation to be entertained in our hearts and minds a little bit more and we give in to sin a little more often and we're just not faithful in all of the things that we need to be faithful in 12 months of the year, not just 10. And that just becomes a reminder that as we approach the coming of Christ, we don't want to be surprised at all at His coming. And the way to not be surprised is to live righteously, to be pursuing holiness in our lives. Jesus said, verses 34 to 38, it's all like, watch yourselves. Don't be giving in to sin. And in practical terms, in essence, be rejecting Christ. Don't be so wrapped up in the world and how awesome it is and how great your life is and how awesome the summer is that you're caught off guard by the coming of Jesus and you're too fixated on the now and not what's coming. And so Jesus says, stay awake, keep praying, and stand firm on matters of righteousness and holiness. Live for Him in every way. Be in the Word, be in community, be in prayer, be in worship. Be serving Christ. Even in this season, and as we await the coming of the Lord. That's it for the nine. And as, as we just kind of wrap up and the team comes up here to lead us in a final song, I, I want us to go back to one of those signs and just think about the world that's in turmoil. And the reality is it is in turmoil. And it does seem to us at this point that it's getting worse, though we're not sure. But we want to be ready. And we want to be vigilant about all of these things. And maybe it's less about the world and more about you personally, that there's turmoil even in your own heart. And today's a wake-up call to that, to get your life back centered on Jesus Christ and focusing on His coming and living for Him. And the longing of our hearts shouldn't be to dissect the prophecies and to get details and speculate about these things but to press in even more deeply to Jesus Christ and with great longing in our hearts to plead with Him, plead with Him to come soon. Amber's going to sing. Joel and Megan are playing. Use this as a time to reflect and even to make the song, which is a plead 
for God to come soon, for Christ to come soon. Let that be your prayer as we close our time. So you listen, you can worship along as God leads you.